My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Anyone who has done a retreat will normally end up doing the Way of the Cross. What happens when you do the Way of the Cross? Well, you use a prepared text normally, and you go through each one of the 14 stations. Often people will go through the church or a chapel and stop in front of a panel or a painting or a sculpture of each station, and they gaze at it. They recite a prepared text. And it can be very moving as you contemplate the Lord's anguish, His pain, and the way He allowed Himself to be so mistreated by the authorities. The texts often describe the hostile reactions of the crowds around Him, but also the pain and the anguish of His followers like our Blessed Mother, or you know, other figures. Uh, and we, we understand also that he suffered all this purely out of love for us. And one really has to have a heart-to-heart to go through this without at least a bit of empathy for our Blessed Lord. I remember a few years ago I was doing the Way of the Cross with a group of young men. One of them was leading the way of the cross and he was reciting the meditations from St. Josemaria, doing them one by one. He would read each one of the stations. Well, we all knew the text pretty well. And the guy reading was not known for his uh, effusive or emotional character. He had a rather quiet and laid-back temperament and rarely showed much emotion. But this time... As he came to the third station, Jesus Falls, the third time, he began reciting the description out loud, as usual, but then he came to a point in the text which reads, the worn-out body of Jesus staggers now beneath the huge cross. His most loving heart can barely summon up another breath of life for his poor, wounded limbs. Now, as he read, he was supposed to keep reading, you know, continue. But suddenly there was silence. He could not continue. He tried, but his voice cracked in just because of his emotion. He was stopped there in his tracks by what he read. He simply could not go on. So, he just handed the book to somebody else, and that person continued. And we all continued to listen with even more intensity and we could conjure up more clearly the image of Jesus lovingly clutching the cross in pain, but plodding on with love. It was as though we could feel the Lord's magnanimous heart, his heart filled with love for all of us, despite those wounded limbs. It was like having a front row seat in front of the greatest drama of human history, It's more dramatic and more moving than any of the greatest war histories or any of the greatest war heroes of history. Reading the Passion narrative often has that effect. One cannot remain indifferent. 
listening to this, well, a real contrition wells up in the heart. And one realizes that we are called to do more with our life, much more. You've likely read some heroic stories of war heroes who, who stay with their men, their brothers in arms, and will drag wounded brothers to safety, while they themselves end up either getting severely wounded or even killed. Most of us have seen movies about this. These soldiers were always impelled by a desire to undertake something great. They were deeply loyal and were ready to suffer for their brothers, now especially in the heat of battle. They were not cowering in a corner. They clearly were men of great and magnanimous hearts. These were likely the greatest acts they had ever done in their lives. So, well, it is right that we reward them with medals and recognize their courage and their valor for such great actions. Now, growing up, I heard some pretty impressive stories from my own family who were children, you know, parents were children, and had to hide to escape the advancing uh, Russian troops. Or as children, they would have to wear boots going to bed so they would be able to evacuate as fast as possible to get to the bomb shelter because they would often be bombed during the night. And I would hear stories also of St. Josemaria. And St. Josemaria also told stories about being hauled up in the legation of Honduras in Madrid in the 1930s, hiding from the Republican militia who were ready to shoot on sight. It was an environment in the Spanish Civil War in which thousands of priests, nuns and religious and devoted lay people died, summarily uh, executed, just for their faith, just for having a medal of Our Lady or a scapulary. They would be executed. So let's now pray and ask ourselves in the presence of God, what is it like for me to suffer but to suffer out of love. Have I suffered out of love in my life? Do I desire to do something great with my life? Maybe when we think of undertaking great things or getting involved in some huge undertaking, we pr perhaps we think of, of a challenge at work or maybe a, undertaking a successful marketing strategy or or some significant building project of some kind in our work. Or if you're a student, you might just dream of killing those exams and getting the best GPA ever. But what really is the greatest thing we could undertake in our life? What are my greatest desires? When I think about, you know, what do I really desire? What is my greatest dream? How have I really tapped into something that is described as great. That something, that, that great thing that we describe as the great adventure of love. This is not simply doing a good and honest thing. For us to do something truly great, it must somehow be a response to God's grace, God's transformative love. So many saints have been transformed when they came to understand the love of God for them and the call of God for them. They didn't simply pass 
from being atheists to being theists or, or to be believers or being you know, undecided agnostics to becoming believers. The grace of God does that. It makes us believers, but the grace of God transforms our deepest desires, our deepest dreams, and purifies our hearts to love really that which is worthy of being loved. That is the impact of our vocation, a divine call. It's a call that keeps on ringing in our hearts all our life. It's especially strong at the beginning, but it keeps ringing. It keeps demanding of us more love. It is such a powerful grace that it sustains us all our life through pain, through setbacks, through moments of darkness, through dryness, and especially when we see our very evident weaknesses. That's what we have to reflect on. That's what we have to pray about. Like I read some time ago, I read the letter to the youth by Pope Francis in which he describes the vocation in terms of a gaze of love. Of course, the gaze of Jesus, the gaze of God. He said it like this. I just quote here a brief passage from his letter from 2017. He says, Jesus looks at you and invites you to go with him. Dear young people, have you noticed this look towards you? Have you heard his voice? Have you felt this urge to undertake this journey? Let's reflect on that, this, this gaze of the Lord. You know, it is said that St. Peter betrayed the Lord. In, you know, that scene in the Gospel when our Lord was being taken away and uh, he was in the courtyard and somebody asked him if he was one of his followers. And he pretended not to know him. And he gave in to this glaring human respect. And he was afraid at that moment to defend our Lord in the most crucial time when he was accused of being one of his followers. And he found a, well, a brilliant excuse saying, well, I don't know, I don't know the Galilean. You know, this was a simple servant that was that was asking him, are you one of his followers? You, your accent sounds like you might be one of his followers. Of course, he knew that Galilean, Jesus, of course he knew it was Jesus. And of course, he was one of his followers. But he thought, well, he might get arrested if he admitted to this. And, and uh, you know, he even became disproportionately angry with this servant who identified him. So he just denied him. It's a famous denial of St. Peter. Now, in the history of art, there have been many beautiful devotional paintings that refer to this denial. But one of the most famous types of paintings that have always struck me are these 14th century paintings or devotional paintings. In German, they called them Andachtsbilder, that is, uh, devotional paintings that show our Lord during the Passion, surrounded by all the instruments of the Passion. They're called sometimes the Man of Sorrows, where he's standing there covered in blood with a crown of thorns, and all those instruments of the Passion kind of like completely surrounding him, and you would identify each one. You'd see the spear, the column, the whip, the dice that the soldiers used to win his tunic, 
the reed with the sponge of vinegar, the hands of Pilate washing his hands, the nails, and so many other elements. You even see the tomb on the bottom, right? The, where it seems as though the Lord is kind of standing in the in, in standing outside of the tomb. But the most glaring instrument or, or the most glaring image that you see there is the is the rooster. A simple, innocent rooster, the one that crowed exactly at the moment when Peter had denied the Lord for the third time. Now it's just a rooster, and you see his plumage, and the red comb on the top of his head, and the wattle uh, dangling from his chin, this, wet, this red, uh, I guess they call it a wattle. But for Christians, that image impelled them never to offend the Lord and to desire more deeply to make themselves more available to God's plans and and to God's grace. And they say that this this red comb, you can picture a rooster now with this red comb, eh? and it's very bright red sometimes. eh? Well, why does he have this red comb? Well, they say that it has the effect of on, on his being more desirable to the hens when they're selecting a mate. They see that red comb and they say, oh, yeah, it, it's kind of, because apparently it in- indicates his health and his willingness also to share his own food with the hen. And so it makes it very desirable when he's so bright red there. And for Peter and for us, well, the rooster must indicate that we want to give the best of ourselves to our Lord, to the church, to the bride of Christ. We want to give the best of ourselves, and the Lord calls us to this, and we must desire this. Peter, when that happened, he realized that, well, he desired more his own security. He desired more uh, to be kind of in a safe territory and not reveal that he was indeed one of Jesus' followers. He didn't want any trouble. He didn't want to complicate his life. He was not really ready at that moment to undertake great things. A great thing would have been to be arrested with Jesus, to be identified as one of his followers. But no, 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 I'm not ready for that, he, he would have said. Well, we too must discern how much we are really ready to love the Lord, to love you, Lord Jesus, and to give you our very best, and to desire to give you our very best. Or perhaps it's possible that we just typically don't want to complicate our lives too much. And our own desire to undertake great things really is at the heart of our sanctity, not our abilities, not our intelligence, or for that matter, our own personal prowess. That's not at the, at the heart of our sanctity. And you remember, when that cock crowed, Peter heard that, and his heart was suddenly singed with sorrow. When he heard that, he suddenly realized that he had been weak and cowardly. He suddenly realized that there was that, that was the moment when he actually had betrayed our Lord. And he probably felt deep anguish when he saw afterwards the piercing gaze of the Lord. It was a gaze that said, Peter, I knew you would be weak on your own. eh? When you rely on your own strength, on your own willpower, 
I knew you wouldn't really do it. I mean, that's why our Lord himself, you know, prophesied that he would do this. Our Lord would have said, well, just with that gaze, he would have said, I know that you want to be faithful, that you want to be my apostle. I know that you want to carry my love to others and to be my instrument for the world. So don't worry, Peter. I still love you. You just need now to count on me. And I will give you all the grace you need. So hang in there, Peter. Hang in there. And now, well, I have to go off and fulfill my mission, the mission that the Father has given me, to die for the world. So don't be sad. Don't be sad, Peter. I will be back. (laughs) I'll be back. But before this event in the courtyard, Peter had valiantly defended Jesus in the Garden of Olives. Remember the scene where these soldiers come with the high priest to arrest Jesus? Well... Peter was mad, and so with his sword in hand, he wanted to strike the head of the servant who dared to lay hands on Jesus. But in his anger, he kind of missed, and he only succeeded in striking the man's ear. Remember those words of our Lord, put your sword back into its scabbard, Peter. There was no doubt, I think, there was no doubt that Peter had faith. But it was a bit too emotional, too human, and it really needed some purification. Well, that purification came now when he denied him. He denied him, but then he was purified with those tears of sorrow for his own betrayal. We remember how the Lord had said it a few hours before in the intimacy of that Last Supper. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, go strengthen your brethren. Well, Peter has committed a a grave sin by denying our Lord. But his repentance is also very, very deep. His faith now was put to the test. And now it will become the basis on which Christ will build his church. Because Jesus prayed for him, and therefore Jesus gave him his grace. Well, isn't it, isn't it cool that the Lord builds his church not merely on human qualities or intelligence, but on Peter's sincere repentance? That's when he, he really discerns his call to greater things. Now, in our own lives, we too should remember that no matter how low we may have fallen, how many sins we may have have committed, God, in His mercy, a mercy which is infinite, He is always ready to forgive us. Because He does not, as we say in the psalm, He does not despise a broken and contrite heart. The psalm in Latin says, Corcontitum et humiliatum Deus non despicius. Isn't that beautiful? Lord, you will not despise, you will not reject a humble and contrite heart, a broken heart. Even if I have a broken heart, well, the Lord makes use of our contrition. So that means what? Well, it means that if we sincerely repent, God will use us, sinners though we may be, as his faithful instruments. 
But we must desire that grace. We must desire to be faithful, ever more desirous as we move along. We cannot say, well, I have these defects, I have these sins, and, you know, God can't use me. I'm just like, it's in my DNA. I just can't do anything. No, no. God wants to use you, you and me. And like Peter, we can let ourselves be gazed upon by the love of Christ. Eh? That penetrating gaze of love that will indeed increase our desires. Eh? That's what Pope Francis was referring to when he spoke to the young people about experiencing the gaze of Jesus on us. And if we do that, if we experience the gaze of Jesus, the gaze of his mercy, his love on us, we can all undertake this great adventure of sanctity. We just have to listen to his call and feel precisely that you're being gazed upon, looked upon every day. This is beautiful. We just have to desire to undertake great things. You know, I heard of a Japanese girl who had converted and, and received baptism after she had studied art in Florence. She was like a pagan. She didn't you know, believe in anything. But then she saw these beautiful crucifixes. She saw these great paintings of the face of Christ. And, you know, in all these great paintings in churches, she began wondering if, well, what about me? Does he actually care about me? She was sensitive to the beauty of this art. And so the Lord gave her this tremendous grace. And her intellectual study of art became actually an adventure of love. Especially, I'm told, especially after she saw the great shroud of Turin. There she experienced the true gaze of Jesus. Just as she had already seen it in other paintings. That's what we have to do. If we experience the gaze of Jesus in our prayer, through our faith, the Lord will impel us to do greater things, never to accept mediocrity in our life, to discern our vocation. And that way, let really our, let us let our lives to be transformed by that loving gaze of Jesus, who wants to undertake that great adventure of love with you. Let's ask our Blessed Mother, the Virgin of Sorrows who stood by the cross and she gazed upon Jesus as well and she accepted that pain and she, well, became co-redemptrix with him. Let's ask for this grace to be sensitive to the grace of God so that our hearts can be open to that magnanimous adventure of love. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations if that you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.